This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the podcast, we revisit these ideas in new and different ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't come here expecting to discuss. I'm very, very happy to be here today with Jennifer Doudna. She's a professor of chemistry and of molecular and cell biology at the University of California, Berkeley. And until around 2012, she was quietly and contentedly studying the three-dimensional structure of RNA molecules. Then she and her colleagues started looking into a thing called CRISPR-Cas9. It is a kind of bacterial immune system, and it led to an invention that will change everything for all of humanity forever, pretty much. Welcome to Think Again, Jennifer. Thank you, Jason. Great to be here. <laughs> Great to have you. So, four words for you. What have you done? <laughs> uh, well, I'm still trying to figure that out, honestly. Um, but in in a in a very in a very very briefly, what 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 has been done is to is to harness a bacterial immune system. Right as a gene editing technology, a way that scientists can, right. can precisely and accurately alter the DNA in cells. Yeah, so it turned out like, so let's, let's talk through that a little bit because yeah, I wanna, get a, I, wanna, I wanna nerd out a little and get a bit technical here. So like, so CRISPR, um, what, what exactly does that stand for again? Clusters of regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats. Right, and so yeah. these, are, these, are, these are sections of, uh, of genes, yeah? Sections Ge of DNA. Of DNA mm -hmm. within, within bacteria, mm -hmm. which basically serve the function of producing RNA that can target, specifically target uh, viruses, right? Correct. Viral cells that yep. are, would normally be coming to destroy the bacteria. That's right. Okay, and then, and then near it, there's a section near the CRISPR there's a section that produces CAS9 in some bacteria, in all bacteria? In some bacteria, all right. yep. And, and, and that's, that produces uh, CAS9, which is a protein or an enzyme, is it we, an we enzyme? We actually call it CAS, CAS9. CAS9, okay. And CAS stands for CRISPR-associated, is an enzyme, it's a protein. Right. And its job is to cleave DNA, and in bacteria it cuts viral DNA. Right, right, right. So very broadly speaking, the 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 RNA that's produced by by CRISPR mm -hmm. uh, attaches to Cas9 uh, enzyme, and then goes and finds the virus, the DNA section that matches it, basically, and then Cas9 cuts it up. 
That's correct. Okay. Yep. And then you um, talk about sort of what, yeah, what the innovation is like. What, what is this tool? I mean, we're call, everyone's calling it CRISPR for short, but CRISPR is the thing in the, like, what did you make? What did you guys make? Right. So, so the, uh, the uh, CRISPR acronym stands for the, basically the, the sequences of DNA that are responsible for adaptive immunity to viruses in bacteria. Right. And in 2011, we started working with a collaborator, Emmanuel Charpentier, on understanding the molecular function, basically the chemical activity of this protein, Cas9. Okay. Why did we pick that protein? Well, there, was, there were hints that this protein was going to be doing very interesting things, that it might be uh, somehow protecting cells from viruses by cutting viral DNA. And we, want, right. we wondered, A, is that true, and B, how does it work? And so when we started doing experiments to understand the chemistry of this right. protein, we figured out that it's literally a programmable protein. It can be programmed with little pieces of RNA, which are chemical copies of DNA, right. that tell this protein to find and cut sequences of DNA that have a match to the RNA. Right. So In, you basically you like imitate what the CRISPR was doing right. naturally and say, okay, rather than this sequence that might happen to be encoded in CRISPR, go find this other sequence, right? That's right. Okay. And once we had that understanding, we realized this could be a wonderful tool for something totally different than what it does in bacteria, namely for introducing DNA breaks in cells by cutting right. DNA at particular sequences. And in plant and animal cells, instead of that pr cutting process leading to the destruction of DNA, it actually triggers DNA repair. And so those cells are able right. to change the DNA sequence when they experience a break at a particular place. So it chops the out this, it chops out the bit and then yeah, and then the the, the cell the DNA repairs itself it just heals like what remains comes and attaches together. Yeah. That's, that's right. right. There are ways to favor different types of DNA repair that lead to either disrupting a gene right. or introducing a new gene into cells. Right. And that turns out to be very powerful to have that capability of changing the DNA in cells in a targeted way. So, so remind me, because I, re I read your book, and I, I really enjoyed your book, and I was clear on this at one point, but now I'm not. How, like, so I get, I get the cutting of a section, I get how, I get how it can go and, you know, cut out even a, a single letter of the DNA sequence. Not sure how you then, yeah, how would you insert something? What is, what, like, if you wanted to insert a certain sequence of, of DNA into a cell, like, how, what's doing that? Mm -hmm. The CS9 is cutting. Yeah. What's doing the inserting? Right. Like, so after the cutting, the pasting yeah. <laughs> is done by other proteins in the cell that naturally have the ability to repair DNA. What they need is they need a thing to paste. Oh, right. And so if, right, right. if the scientist provides a piece of DNA that is to be inserted at the site of the, the break, yeah. some of the time the cell will actually insert that new piece of DNA. And it's pretty accurate. It's like really pretty accurate. It's way more accurate than anything that existed before. Correct. But yeah. you voice some 
if not skepticism, at least caution about, and we'll get to the human germline, you know, and like what it means to, to edit cells before they become babies. But, but you know, some caution about, about using it, you know, therapeutically just yet, right? It's not, it's not 100% accurate. It's really, well, that's right. That's yeah. right. So, so we're still, we being the scientific community, you know, still figuring out how accurate is it? How do we quantify that? Right. Um, how do we make it even better? Um, at what point do we do we worry about inaccuracies? You know, all of those kinds of questions are, are kind of actively being investigated right now for clinical use. Right. A lot more testing is needed, right? And then and yeah, yeah. I want to get into all of the applications. Before I do that, at the risk of completely boring our audience to death, I want to show you something which they can't see. Audience, this is a list of publications by my grandfather at the University of Pennsylvania who was an early bacterial geneticist uh, among other things and I you know I don't expect you to read all this this is like I don't know 50, 70 papers from 1940 something to 1990 but I just wondered like looking at the top do you have any sense of what the hell he was doing because I don't I don't know what this means <laughs> well the first one says purine biosynthesis in Escherichia coli K12 Structure and DNA sequence studies of the pure HD locus. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, just kind of where this fits in yeah. you know, to the picture. Well, so it looks like he, this is really cool. I mean, it looks like he was actually studying how the components of DNA are made in bacteria. Okay. And, you know, that's a fundamental activity in all cells, right, is to make. DNA, right? And many scientists, it sounds like your your grandfather, you know, have 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 made major progress by studying bacteria and and Escherichia coli in particular. That's right. the gut bacterium. It's in our human gut, right? And it's been studied for decades because it has been a you know a, a genetically tractable organism. We can you know study its its DNA and and study all the genes there and it sounds like he was actually studying particular genes responsible you know those genes encode proteins that make the components of DNA yeah I remember I went to his lab like when I was I don't know how old I was but he was early early days of of gene sequencing and he had you know a dot matrix printer that was spitting out you know the 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 triples you know ATC ATG you know the basically which are the chemi the what are they exactly? Well, Remind we call me. them codons. The codons. Yeah, okay. and what they are is they're literally the code that tells the cell make a protein that has this set of amino acids right. in this order. Right, right. Yeah. So yeah, I was seeing some of that stuff back then. Um, yeah, well, so he was a footnote or an early you know paragraph or something in this wow. exciting yeah. story that you're you're on. So now, like, what happened to you is, you know, you were doing your work, and then, you know, you all created this thing, and then basically you realized, as you tell it in the book, that, you know, the implications of, of this technology were absolutely massive. And so maybe we can talk about some of those and kind of the journey of, like, that that led you on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was a fascinating sort of time in my in my personal and professional life because, I was, you know, doing this research and very excited about the just the fundamental discoveries of how this bacterial immune system operated. Right. Enjoying working with my international collaborators. And then, you know, this sort of led to this kind of dawning realization that 
this technology was really going to transform not just our own lab and the science we were doing, but but everybody else's too, and uh, you know that and and sort of how to think about that and how to grapple with that. It, it took me some time, honestly, to really decide that I would, uh, you know, make a very conscious effort to engage in a more public discussion right. about the technology. And one of the things that, honestly, that led to that was, uh, you know, at, at that time we were having frequent, uh, had sort of a weekly dinner with our neighbors, you know, okay. and you know our kids are the same age, and so they, they would come over for dinner. And our neighbor's a software engineer, and so you know he he would always ask, you know, so what's what's going on in the lab, and and so I was, you know, I was telling about this work and you know he said well gosh so you mean this is sort of like uh, being able to change the software in a cell and I said yeah that's, a, that's actually a pretty good <laughs> analogy yeah right you know if you think of the DNA in a cell being like the the program that runs a computer uh, yeah this is uh, being able to change that and tell it to do something else you know and you know he said wow that is that's incredibly cool and I thought yeah he's right and then you know we started talking about all the ways that scientists might use something like that. Right. And it was really that discussion that was, you know, very happening very early on that, you know, for me really was one of the things that made me think that first of all that, you know, this was this was going to there were going to be a lot of implications of this. And secondly that I realized, boy, I'm telling my neighbor about this, but but nobody else outside of my little world of scientists has any idea that this is going on. Right. Government regulators don't know about it, you know, uh, right? And right. Funding agencies don't really know about it. Other other people outside of science don't know about it. And I thought, you know, that that felt wrong. You know, how could you have something this profound that was going to impact people's lives eventually and have them not be aware that this was coming down the pike? You make an analogy which had occurred to me multiple times before I got to that part of the book to the Manhattan Project, you know, and basically like, okay, nobody really understood what that these folks behind closed doors were, you know, splitting the atom and then suddenly, wow, we live in a nuclear world. Um, so some of the implications of this technology, like there are things we understand pretty well, right? Or you guys understand in terms of certain diseases that are caused by certain genetic mutations, like things, things that are pretty contained, I guess, within the DNA. And then there are many things which are much more complex and sort of harder to parse, right? Right, right. So like what, you know, let's start with the easy stuff. Like what's, what's the, the, the sort of obvious things that this technology might be used for to humanity's benefit? If it gets yeah. used on humans, which it will eventually. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, I think there, you know, we already know of a few thousand mutations in single genes right. in the human genome right. that, uh, that, you know, cause known diseases. And so we have now a tool that, in principle, allows correction of those changes and, right. and fixing of, a, of mutations that would lead to disease. So I think, you know, that's a very exciting opportunity right there. The challenge is how do you deliver a gene editor into the cells that need editing? Right. And uh, that's, you know, that's, a, that's another big sort of technical hurdle. I think that... Some of the, you were saying the blood-borne diseases are a little easier because yeah. you can take the blood cell out, Correct. manipulate yeah. it, put it back in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So the, the editing can be done, uh, we call it ex vivo, ex -vivo outside yeah. the body. Right. And I think that, that 
type of disease is likely to be one of the early clinical targets for this. Like sickle cell anemia is Sickle one. cell disease would be one, yep. Also diseases of the eye, you know, because the eye is another tissue where you can locally okay. uh, introduce uh, a gene editor into just the, the cells of the eye where you might need to have editing occurring. Oh, interesting. And I think, you know, that's, so that's very, in a way, tangible. There already are research groups that are making real headway towards uh, treating those diseases using the CRISPR technology. Right. And I'm sorry, asterisk on that. Why does that work? Like, why, how come, like, do the cells replicate so quickly once they get back into the body that they then overwhelm the number of sick cells? Like, yeah, so, okay. so right. So the, the, the principle there is that one would actually want to edit what we call stem cells, right? right. These are cells that give rise to new blood cells. Right. And so the idea would be to edit those cells and then put them back into the bone marrow and let them give rise to essentially a new blood system that gotcha. has, has corrected cells. And the older bad cells would, would die, die off and they'd be replaced. Right, yeah. Gotcha. yeah. So now you became uh, one, of, one of the big concerns here and one of the things that you've really focused on is the editing of the, the idea of, the, of germline editing. So which is like basically a, a you know, a, I don't know at what point in the replication process, but before you have a, a viable embryo, editing human genes such that they can then be transmitted to the next generation. What are some, I mean, there are so many issues around that, but what are some of the main concerns? Right. Well, first of all, I think it's important to understand that this is already being done in animals right. routinely, right? So people are making new strains of mice to, to use to study human disease using that kind of strategy and, and certainly many other kinds of animals as well, also in plants, you know. Gotcha. But fairly early on in the development of this technology, you know, there was a publication where a research group had used the CRISPR technology to do what we call germline editing in monkey embryos and right. had created monkeys that had genetic modifications that were transmissible to future generations. And these monkeys were otherwise completely normal. They just had this, this genetic little what, change. What, what, what was up with the monkeys? What was the difference? Like was uh, it well, anything visible or? No, it wasn't. Yeah, it okay. was, nope, they were changing a gene in the liver okay. uh, of these monkeys. And they could detect it by DNA sequencing. Okay, you know? something subtle, yeah. Something subtle. But nonetheless, that was kind of the, for me, the, one of the, the real, um, uh, you know, moments, I guess, when I felt like, you know, this is uh, moving pretty darn fast. And, you know, I thought to myself, you know, what would prevent anyone today from doing that in human embryos? seemed like nothing in principle. Yeah. And so that was really a big motivator for me to get out and, and, and start discussing this more publicly. And I, we ended up convening a meeting in early 2015 with a few scientists. We had about just, a, just around 20 scientists that got together in the Napa Valley to discuss this very issue. We brought in uh, people that had been involved in the early ethical discussions around molecular cloning back right. in the 1970s, Paul Berg and, and David Baltimore, uh, two Nobel laureates who were you know, very eminent scientists and had thought deeply about these kinds of issues with respect to molecular cloning. And so it was great to have their, their, uh, their perspective and, and uh, it was a very timely, it turned out, because just a few months later, there was publication of the first work that was done in human embryos using uh, the CRISPR technology. And it was a group using non-viable embryos, so they weren't making CRISPR babies or right. anything. But nonetheless, it was sort of the, you know, the first indication that sure enough, you know, people were already headed in that direction. 
Yeah, and you and you say I think that like in the end you're not like it's not that you're categorically forever against necessarily right. germline editing. For example, I don't know, like if there were a heritable cancer, right, that we knew that we could eliminate. And and the other tricky bit of course is that as you point out in the book, we don't know there are so many things like we don't know what the ancillary effects might be, right? You edit one thing out and then oh, guess what? some other totally unexplained you know, problem occurs or an immunity that you had to something else is gone, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but theoretically, assuming there were a good enough sense of control and that we decided that we like ethically had to do it because can't let that person grow up and get that cancer, like, okay, but we, have to, we just have to really proceed with, with caution and not end up hopefully also with like vanity editing, like let's make ourselves sexier or something stupid like that. Yeah, I think, well, you know, uh, yeah. It, I mean, I think with any technology, right, there's sort of a cost benefit that you have to do. Right. And there's a risk associated with doing this, right? right. And so you'd have to ask, is it worth that sort of enhancement uh, with the risk of potentially introducing harmful uh, changes? Right. And, you know, and then there's all, of course, the many, many associated questions. Who, who decides the answer to that? Who pays for it? Yeah, yeah. Who gets access to it? Should companies make money doing this? Um, right. What happens when something goes wrong? Who is responsible? You know, all those kinds of questions. And as you point out, I mean, like, should it become viable to, assuming we could even figure out what exactly would control for, again, I'm going to use the blunt term sexiness, who would first have access to that? Your insurance probably would not pay for it, so therefore it would be wealthy people, and therefore we, you, know, you are then encoding genetically differences, you know, strata into society, right? Yeah, or and one divisions. person's definition of sexy, which might not right, be other Right, 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 there's that too, so, yeah. Yeah, right. So I think- Huge Pandora's box. <laughs> huge Pandora's box. And I think the whole question of, of yeah, sort of access and who, who decides, who regulates, how do we ensure that there's equitable access to right. this kind of technology? I think those are all things that really need to be considered. Are you optimistic at this point? I mean, in all honesty, like having had the conferences, you know, been to the conferences, seeing what's going on in terms of the scramble of industry to get its hands on this technology, you know, the dollar signs that are attached to it, the sort of international differences in regulation. Are you optimistic about the ability to control this in the ways that you'd like to, that you think it ought to be controlled? Well, I, I sort of think that we're looking at sort of a three-legged stool situation, right. right? One leg of the stool is, uh, you know, the desire of, uh, on the part of companies to, you know, forge ahead and do things that are going to make money, right. uh, or, or on the part of scientists who maybe want to be famous, maybe they want to be the first person to make a CRISPR baby, you know, right? right and, sure. and get the, have the associated uh, fame around that. Uh, so there's there's that leg. Then there's the leg that that is sort of the caution, even for companies and, and and certainly for scientists, realizing that you know if you do something that is irresponsible in some way or unethical, you might get sued. Uh, you might get sued. Yeah. You might you might lose your reputation. Right. Uh, you might not be able to do research in the future. People might not respect you. You know all those sorts of things, right? And that's true for individuals and companies. It's also true for countries. 
right? Whole whole societies sure. who want to be seen in a respectful uh, light, and they don't want to have uh, something reflected negatively. And then the third leg of the stool is, frankly, I think, at least I hope, is sort of the desire to do good. You know, right. the desire to see new technology really used to solve real problems that have been intractable in the past. Right. And so we've got those three forces that are kind of intersecting in an interesting way. And Indeed. how they will sort of balance out and, you know, will there be uh, bad actors who say, well, I don't care what people think, I'm going to forge ahead and offer couples the chance to make CRISPR babies. Uh, right. I can't say there won't be, but I do think that there's an, there, there's an interesting count, counterbalancing forces right now that might at least make that less likely. Yeah, I'd like to think that on balance, humanity would take the sort of the better road. I mean, I you know, I, I it's easy to be cynical about about humanity sometimes, but but um, but I'd but I'd like to think that you know, look, I mean, the immense potential health benefits. The you know, there there are just so many ways that the technology can be used for good. Um, that hopefully that the like numerically that will outweigh the stupid, right? That's what we. Have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have to try. <laughs> what else can we do? Indeed, right? yeah. yeah. And you're actively trying that all over the world, so that's that's great. I think that's a good place for us to transition in the second half of the show, where we're just going to kind of springboard off of surprise videos that might be on any subject, okay? okay. Yeah. So let's see where these unleash. Th these are chosen by our producers. I have not seen them. This first one is three dire warnings that could stop global catastrophe. And the speaker is Richard A. Clark, global affairs and security expert. So let's see. The subtitle of our book is Finding Cassandras to Stop Catastrophes. Cassandra, in Greek mythology, was someone cursed by the gods who could accurately see the future, but would never be believed. When we say Cassandras throughout the book, we're talking about people who can accurately see the future. People who are right. Cassandra was right. People who are right about the future, but are being ignored. Having derived what we think are the lessons learned from past Cassandra events, we then looked at people today who were predicting things and being ignored. And we looked at issues first and then tried to see if there was someone warning about them. So the book is about people, 14 people, seven who we know were Cassandras and seven who we are examining to find out if they are. Usually Cassandras are people who are not directly involved in the thing that they worry about. There are people who observe it, and there are people who study it. But in the case of Jennifer Dudena at the University of California, Berkeley, she's the person who created it. And she's also our Cassandra. The it in this case is CRISPR-Cas9, a method that she invented, and I'm sure someday we'll get a Nobel Prize for, a method of doing gene editing. Now, this is going to revolutionize human life. It's already beginning. It's going to mean that all of the genetic defects that have caused so much pain and suffering for people, all of that could potentially be removed. So why does the great woman who invented this wake up in the middle of the night worrying about it? What she told us was she's afraid that she might have become Dr. Frankenstein that the technique that she developed could be misused in horrible ways. It could be misused, for example, to create biological weapons, 
to create new forms of threats to human beings. Or it could simply be used to create human beings of far superior capability. And so one scenario we discussed with her was what if the North Koreans or the Chinese decided that they would create super soldiers, physically large people with great athletic ability, designed to be soldiers, designed to be aggressive. What if in the process of that kind of gene editing, we created a caste society where some people were genetically designed to do menial tasks and didn't have the capability of doing anything else. And other people were designed to be the rulers with huge IQs and the capability of understanding things beyond the pale for lesser humans. That's something that scared the creator of CRISPR-Cas9, and it scared us. When we heard Jennifer's story, we asked ourselves, does she fit uh, the template uh, of a Cassandra? Is she an expert? Absolutely, she is the expert. She created it. Is she data-driven? Yes, she has a wealth of data on CRISPR-Cas9 and what it can do. Is she predicting something that is first occurrence syndrome, something that's never happened before? The answer to that is yes. So, okay, well, that is certainly not out of left field. That must be very strange to listen to yourself talked about in that way. It's a bit odd, yeah. <laughs> I cannot yeah. imagine. Um, I mean, yeah, talking about like the this sort of Cassandra idea, though, let's let's go to that. You know, any any new technology, you, you do have the people who split into like two factions, right? The detract, the total detractors, and then the far out boosters of the technology who think it's going to abs, you know, usher in a new utopia. Um, let's talk about the detractors a little bit, because in your book, you in your book, you you know, the, I I actually found it refreshing, and I may get a lot of hate for this on the internet, but. But I found it, or not, we'll see. Um, we, I found it refreshing the way you talked about um, the GMO debate and sort of this whole issue that some people have, this idea of natural. That, that people make a fine line between what's natural and what's unnatural, and if it's unnatural, then it's bad. Can, can we talk a little bit about, about that in the context of CRISPR? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because I have found that in recent, um, especially in the last few months in talks that I've been giving about CRISPR and gene editing more, more broadly and kind of the impacts of this and ethical questions around it, uh, this, this uh, point has come up increasingly frequently, which is the question of how do we, what, what does it mean to do something that's natural? What is a natural right. organism? And you know, in the broadest sense, you could say, well, humans are natural, and so anything that humans do is kind of natural because that's part of who we are. And so therefore, if you have gene editing technologies that we've come up with that, that you know, organisms that are generated using that technology are kind of natural. Right. So that's one way to think about it. And, uh, but what I talk about in the book is actually the uh, framing it a little bit differently, which is thinking about the fact that 
you know, let's face it, human beings have been engineering plants for millennia, right? I mean, if we think about breeding, you know, yeah, plant yeah. breeding, that's been done for millennia. Nothing that we eat today looks anything like what it started off as. I don't know if anybody's seen a, what a tomato plant looked like <laughs> right, right, <laughs> originally, right. but you wouldn't want to eat those tomatoes. Probably not um, even like uh, as nice as an heirloom tomato, not, which looks pretty nothing, weird already. Not even like, close. Like yeah. they were little sort of pea-shaped uh, fruits, you know, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> certainly not, not tasty, very sour. And, uh, you know, and so I think that uh, if you think about the, the process of plant breeding, and of course in modern times uh, this is being done now using chemical or radioactive mutagenesis. So right. Seeds are, are exposed they introduce to random, chemicals yeah, mutations, that introduce yeah. random mutations, and then those seeds are grown up and, and plants are selected that have desired traits. Who knows what other DNA changes are coming along for the ride. I think to me that's a lot less natural than if you had a way to go in and make very targeted changes to DNA that you know altered a particular right. trait without affecting the rest of the DNA in the plant. You know, I think part of the whole debate about GMO is really just thinking about what is it that we're really talking about here? What you know, how 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 do we define a natural versus an unnatural plant? And uh, what is it that we, you know, distrust about supposed or, or so, you know, things that have been labeled GMO? Right. Um, and, and how do we want to think about the use of new technologies that maybe offer opportunities to make plants that are, you know, have traits that we want without altering the rest of the DNA? Yeah, I mean, with that radiation-induced mutation that you were talking about, I mean, I don't think a lot of people know about that. I right. think that I just don't yeah. think people are aware of that, and mm -hmm. I think if they knew about that, they would that would freak a lot of people out. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I guess what seems reasonable to me is to say that, like, well, no, I mean, it all it all makes sense. I mean, I guess what where people's problem is, it's like they have this idea that we sort of like co-evolved somehow with certain foods, mm -hmm. and that those are therefore better for us, right? But as you say, like we've been manipulating them, we've been manipulating ourselves and the way that we live. I mean, there's not like natural, yeah, I mean, becomes becomes a bit meaningless. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. You know, well, like there's nothing of, natural about New York City or this studio we're sitting in surrounded by metal objects and curtains. Well, and except it was created except, by natural unless beings. Unless you want to so, say, right, we're natural, yeah. Yeah, so I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah that, I think, the word is confusing. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, it is confusing. So I think I think it's, it, to me, it's very important, you know, especially with the, you know, the sort of the advent of, of gene editing to encourage, you know, accurate thinking about this, you know. And right. People don't have to understand the gory details of how it works, but I think it's important that they understand a little bit about it so they can evaluate products that are going to be coming on the market, you know, that it will be created using this technology. Because you have to really understand a little bit about the science right. to, to feel, you know, feel qualified to make a decision, I think. Yeah, and as you say, it's, a, it's about sort of subtle risk assessment, which people don't People don't aren't necessarily all that comfortable with. Like right. I mean, you know, we yeah. don't want to be in that position of, of playing God, yeah, 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 in a right. way, right? Yeah. Playing God, right? And then so there's this fear. I mean, we do it all the time. We do it in every aspect of our lives, right? Yeah. What's gonna kill me? What's not gonna should I go left? Should I go right? But yeah. yeah, but people but when it comes down to like, should I take the risk that if I remove this little section of a gene that might cause you know, my my soon to be born child, Tay-Sachs. I don't know what some disease like a, mm -hmm. that. Some other unforeseen consequence will occur. I mean, I guess we don't want to take it on. 
I guess that's the fear. Yeah, right? it's hard to, hard. I mean, it feels like an awesome responsibility in a way, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's hard to take that on. I think with something like that, you know, something very severe like Tay-Sachs, you know, you might be more willing to accept some level of risk than for something, you know, seemingly uh, where the risk benefit seems, seems less obvious. Right. You know? I mean, intelligence is a good example, right? I mean, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, first of all, intelligence is such a complex concept, right? And so let's say we could boost the IQ score, whatever that would mean of, you know, the, the, the I don't know, is that computational intelligence, analytical intelligence, whatever that is, you know, of a, of a soon to be born baby. Like we have no idea what that will do to the trajectory of that person's life or any way of evaluating whether it makes their life better, right? Yeah, there's many, many uh, ways <laughs> to think about that. One is, one is what you just said, that you, know, you can define intelligence in different ways. I think one of the things that's wonderful about human beings and, and human societies is the diversity that we see. You know, right. it's really fun, and and just you know, being for me, being an educator and, a, and an academic, you know, just seeing students that come in, like I, you know, we're I'm at a public university. We have students from all over the world that come to the University of California, Berkeley, right. uh, to to study all sorts of things, and they come from all kinds of backgrounds. It's fascinating for me to see the way pe people bring different ways of thinking about problems and, and situations to their work. And so I, I think that's a, a really uh, wonderful thing that would be a shame to ever lose. But then there, there's a very practical aspect to all of this, which is right. that, you know, as you kind of alluded to, you know, intelligence is not stemming from one or a few genes. It's stemming from many, many, many genes and right. in, that are interacting with each other. There's a lot of evidence that environment has an effect on, on intelligence. Um, there probably are what we call epigenetic effects right, sure. on intelligence that don't have to do with the actual DNA sequence, but have to do more with the way the information in the DNA is being used. So I think that it'll be a long time, honestly, before we can really control something like that with gene editing. Right, if and ever. we may never be if able ever. to, right. Yeah. I mean, if the yeah. epigenetic effects, like which would be you know, which I have the vaguest understanding of, but is basically the sort of nurture part of nature nurture, right? Environment triggering gene expression or blocking it. Right. Um, there's too many causal factors. Like you would never, how I, well, I never say never, but I mean. <laughs> It'll be hard. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 So we, so we should, we should basically stick to what we pretty well know we can do for the benefit of humanity, probably. I well, mean, you know, and again, <laughs> well, I think if you're talking about germline editing in humans, there I feel that at least for clinical use, meaning to actually use it to create a gene edited person, I think that's still a ways away, you know, and, and, and it's one of those, you know, should we go there kinds of things. I think we're still grappling with a lot of the fundamental questions around that kind of use of gene editing. I think the reality is that, you know, there will be people. I don't know where and, and when exactly, but I think there will be people that happen. decide to do it, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think we need to be ready for that. I think we need to be um, already kind of uh, thinking about how we respond to that. And uh, I, don't, I think it would be a, a mistake to, to sort of say, well, no one will ever do that, so we don't have to think about it. I think we actually have to think about it because it's now yeah. a, it's, it's a possibility. Yeah, and we yeah. should be cautious against maybe the reverse 
discrimination against those neo-humans should they occur right i mean we don't want to like some baby is born like it's a baby like it didn't it didn't necessarily choose you know well to, look what happened with in vitro fertilization you know right. i'm old enough to remember when there was a time before in right. vitro fertilization right and then you know that technology came along and you know there was resistance to it for sure there were people who said that seems wrong to make babies in test tubes that seems you know unnatural we shouldn't be doing that right but there was a huge demand for it because there were a lot of couples who, you know, wanted, or just people who wanted to have kids. Right. And for whatever reason, they couldn't have them except by in vitro fertilization. And so, uh, you know, that technology came along partly just due to the, the demand for it. And once that was available, then, of course, all of the associated things, like people saying, well, I really want to have a daughter. I don't want to have a son. Right. So I'd like to select for embryos that are female. Or, you know, I know I have this genetic trait in my family and I want to be sure that I don't transmit it to my kids, so let's make sure we select for embryos that don't have that. That's all sort of been is coming along. Is that happening? Like, yeah, 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 that's yeah, happening, right? It is, right? And it's really Which is not... eugenics in a sort of a sort. It kind of is, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, yeah, and people don't talk about it that way, but if you think about it, it really is going in that direction. So it's one of those things. I think we could see, we could see the same thing happening in the future with CRISPR technology, where you see it starting to be deployed in a few isolated cases, and then it becomes more acceptable to use it more broadly. Yeah, it's um, a slippery slope. You, you were know. talking about, what were the, there were a couple examples in your book. Can you remember any of them of like borderline changes? You know, I mean, it's one yeah. thing to say sickle cell, but like, what are what there was one or two that you specifically well mentioned. the sickle cell is one that is one of these kind of I, I think we talked about this in the book that it's a it's a trait that you know you could ask why has that gene been maintained in the human population if it causes this horrible disease and it's it's interesting that people that have one copy of the sickle cell gene and one normal copy they tend to be more resistant to malaria and uh, you know, and there's some, there's a, there are other other examples like that. There's some evidence that this the gene for cystic fibrosis is also a gene that has some beneficial effects in certain environments. And so, right. who's to say? There, there. I, I suspect there will be a lot of genes like that where there's a, you know, there's a very maybe obvious effect of having one type of you know, one allele we would call it of that one type one sort of variant of that gene, but there also might be benefits to it in other settings. Yeah, I mean, it's important. I guess that the real takeaway is that it's important that we keep talking about it and that we not sort of just throw up our hands because these things and are say so it's ambiguous. too complex. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing to appreciate is that, uh, you know, this technology is moving lightning fast, right? It still is. I think it'll just be essential that this conversation be ongoing and that we continually reevaluate, you know, where are we now? So I'll give you one example. So, you know, we had this, uh, we had a meeting uh, that was a few months ago now where one of the topics of discussion was human germline editing, meaning right. human, you know, sort of embryo editing. And it was pointed out at that meeting that already the technology in mice is available to create uh, germ cells, meaning create sperm or eggs from somatic cells. Okay. And so that means that I could take a, a cell from a, you know, that's sort of a fully uh, uh, developed differentiated cell and turn it back into a germ cell, in principle at least, do gene editing on that cell, never have to go through the stage of an embryo, right? Okay. Cre create a change that would, you know, maybe correct a genetic defect or introduce a desired gene 
into the germ cell, so the whole issue of embryo editing kind of goes away. Oh wow! Right. Okay. So, yeah. so you know, this is what I mean. It's just that the technology is moving so fast that questions that we have today or concerns, uh, you know, ethical things that come up, some of them may change or even go away over time because of the technologies that are changing. Right, right, right. Yeah, so I mean, but like it's relevant to everyone. Every, everybody sort of needs to understand this. Yeah, yeah. Complex or alien as it may seem. Well, and you, yeah. you know, the other thing, here's another thing that I think <laughs> about, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't know to what extent this might happen, but you could imagine disreputable companies perhaps who are kind of unregulated might offer services to people. They might say, Hey, uh, you know, you can have a, you know, come in and we'll make sure your kid is, you know, uh, really tall and, you know, has a certain eye color and has certain other traits. Right. And if there's no regulation around that, if there's no vetting of that, who controls that? Who decides? You know, right. people could pay money for such a thing, and are they going to get that or not? I mean, who, you know, who, well, that's who yeah, that's it? what's really confusing because so, I just don't see what the yeah, like any one regulatory body. It seems like multiple. And certainly, you know, that's not going to happen in the United States, but right. it could happen in other jurisdictions potentially right. where there aren't close regulations around such things. So then I was going to react to what the guy said, the fellow in the video whose uh -huh. name is Richard Clark, yeah. uh, said about China and North Korea. That's part of this brinksmanship that can happen with these things where it's like, what if they do it? We better do it first, you know, kind of thing. However, I guess it's not entirely unrealistic. I mean, in the case of certainly North Korea and possibly China to think that they're regulatory structures might be significantly, that they are significantly different from ours. So those things might, in fact, happen there first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, without uh, putting aside sort of American paranoia about, about Asia, like that's not unrealistic, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, I, I think let's, that's a good, good time for us to transition to the uh, second and final of our surprise videos. And this one is going to take us in a very different direction. We must keep our minds open. It is Deepak Chopra talking about secular spirituality. Let's see where we go from this. Most religion is based on a belief system, on a dogma, or an ideology. Spirituality is based on experience. And if I were to summarize all the experiences, uh, that lead to spirituality or spiritual experience, they can be summarized in two words, self-awareness. So when I say self-awareness, it means awareness of experience through the five senses, sound, touch, sight, taste, and smell. It means awareness of my body, my muscles, my skeletal system, what's happening inside my body. You can train to learn that through practices that are meditational or yogic. It means awareness of mental space, thoughts, memories, sensations, images, uh, imagination. And finally, it means awareness of relationship, awareness of me in relationship to friends and family, to community, to society, to the earth, to the stars, to the galaxies. We exist in relationship. Uh, without that, there is no existence. Now this is very interesting because the more you experience this kind of self-awareness, you see that you are an activity of the total universe. And that is a mystery. Uh, no one knows why there is a universe. And no one knows why there is existence. And no one actually knows 
how we have the awareness of existence. Why do we have awareness of existence? But what it does do ultimately, it leads to what I call epistemological humility. Um, not knowing, which is actually the basis of all creativity. If you knew everything, there wouldn't be any creativity. So not knowing creativity and humility and even reverence for existence, these are spiritual qualities. You don't have to believe in God as a dead white male in the sky or a patriarchal figure or even an entity that is outside of existence. So, you know, I tend to say that spirituality can be extremely secular and that's what we're actually moving into the age of secular spirituality, if I may use that word. I like his, his description of, I think he's sort of talking about consciousness in a way. It's about, you know, being aware of ourselves as beings in relation to others and where we sort of uh, sit in our, in our universe or our conception of the, of the universe. Right. Um, and, you know, I have to say that I, uh, uh, sometimes I think about gene editing in sort of that context because I think about, and there's no way that I can, you know, know obviously where this is all going, but I think about this as an interesting development in the sort of the course of human existence and human consciousness is that we've now gotten to the point where we have the ability to alter the code of life, you know, we can right. change who we are fundamentally. And that's really kind of profound. And, and then it's a question of how do we use that? You know, how do, we, how do we think about it? Ultimately, will it be used to do things that, that we would say are good, are beneficial, right. or somebody's definition of good? Or are they going to be used ultimately in destructive ways? And, and, you know, maybe the answer is both. I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess I would ask, you know, sort of, there are, of course, scientists who might also be spiritual in some way or religious. Um, but I mean, uh, you know, we think of a scientific worldview, a scientific approach to the world. It's like gather the information, try to, you know, parse the facts and figure out figure out what's what, like try to understand, you know, reality as, as nearly as we can. You know, when it comes to, to something like this, to these kinds of questions, how do we, what is the moral compass? Like if you don't, you know, if you don't have religion, as we know from law, it's possible to make an argument for anything, right? Someone can very convincingly explain why they ought to be able to make themselves, you know, look much more handsome with CRISPR. So, you know, where do you think, like, rational people should look for the kind of moral compass on, like, what's okay here, you know? Well, I certainly think looking to the religious traditions is one place, obviously. I've actually had a very interesting series of conversations with people representing uh, different, you know, some of the different major religions about how their traditions think and come mm. to the table uh, around something like this. It's been, it's been would, fascinating. Have you, have you had a chance to talk to the Dalai Lama? I would be totally I have amazed not, to hear what... Wouldn't that be fascinating? Yeah. 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 If I ever, if I ever do, it would be he's great. He's very scientifically, you know, yeah. grounded. He's, he's yeah. interested in science. So, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Anyway. No, yeah, that, would be, that would be amazing. Yeah. Um, but I think, that's, so that, I think that's certainly one source. I also um, myself have found real inspiration from the work of Joseph Campbell, huh. 
who uh, huh. you know wrote Hero with yeah. a Thousand Faces, and you know had a had a actually a whole series of interviews that he did, I think, with Bill Moyers. Right. Um, the Power on, of on, Myth is yeah. the, the book, and yeah. was that actually that was that was the name of the series as well? Yeah. Yeah, 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 I think so. Yep, absolutely fascinating. You know, a very interesting, deep sort of evaluation and analysis of different cultural traditions right. in, in human societies and how people have grappled with some of the really fundamental questions about, you know, who are we, why are we here, right. what's the purpose of life, you know, all these sorts of things, what, what, is, what defines right and wrong, and, you know, I found that to be incredibly uh, helpful when I was sort of, especially in my younger years, you know, kind of, because I came out of a, a Christian tradition in right. my family, but I have found that I got older, as I got older, I, I, I found myself not, you know, and this is just my own personal thing, I, you know, I respect everybody's, uh, you know, beliefs on this, uh, on, on, on all of this, but I, I think that for me, it was very hard for me to use the, the Christian traditions to come to satisfactory answers in my own mind, and so I was sort of searching for other ways to think about things, and I, I, I've really gotten a lot of inspiration from looking at how other world religions have addressed and, and, and sort of, you know, tried to grapple with these questions. And, right. and even even cultures that, you know, like uh, the Native Americans who, you know, had to come up with myths and traditions that would explain sort of the origin of humans and, and things I'm like actually, that. I find it really gratifying to hear you talk this way. I don't know why I I think of it like this, but you know, we have scientists in my in my family and, and I, I don't wanna I don't wanna mischaracterize them, but but I feel like I feel like there's sometimes an empirical, pragmatic worldview that can come from science where all of those other ways of seeing that you're describing are sort of dismissed as mumbo jumbo. And then it's sort of like, well, you know, sure, that's nice. They didn't have any technology, so that's what they came up, you know. They they just kind of had to interpret what they saw, but see, I feel but like you found those meaningful. I feel I, I found them meaningful because I feel like yeah, we have technology, but we still can't answer. Right, <laughs> right, 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 right. So epistemological <laughs> humility, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Jennifer Doudna, it's been lovely speaking with you. Thank you so much for for being on Think Again. Thanks for having me on the show. Really enjoyed it. So that wraps up another episode of Think Again. If you're joining us for the first time or you're relatively new to the show and you're liking what you're hearing, please do me a favor and go to whatever platform you're listening on and rate or review the show. It makes a big difference in terms of who else sees that the show exists. And the other thing that really works uh, for us a lot is word of mouth. So if, if you're really enjoying the show, if it's meaningful to you, tell your friends about it, please. Friends and family. You know, I know a lot of folks are already doing that, and that makes a big difference in the kind of circle of influence that this show reaches. So people who are already doing that, I really appreciate it. And I've been hearing from a lot of people lately, uh, and you should, everyone should feel free to write me at jason at bigthink.com. The one thing that I've been hearing most often, and I could not agree with this more, is that people would like to see a little more incongruity between the surprise clips and the expertise of the guests. So I'm talking to the video team about that, and uh, hopefully we'll be seeing more of that as time goes on. All right, that's it. And we'll be back next week with another unexpected conversation.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.